Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about my guest today because, you know, he's been in some iconic movies. He's been in some iconic TV shows. And if you're like me, over the age of 45, he's a legend. And it's not just because Revenge of the Nerds and Risky Business, but it's the movies that if young people haven't really seen, you good, should go see like One Crazy Summer and uh, Better Off Dead. And my guest is Curtis Armstrong. How you doing, Curtis? I'm good, Steve. Glad to have you on, man. Nice we got we got a lot to talk about. We got a lot to talk about. I, I, you have such a fascinating career, and I was reading that now you were born in Detroit, right? That's correct. Yeah, nineteen fifty three. Now you and your your father was white collar, and your mom was blue collar, I believe. That's basically it. I mean, my my mother's family were Italian immigrants, and uh, she was my grandfather. Her father had sort of worked his way up. Um, when he, when he, uh, after he came through Ellis Island and he, he came to Detroit and wound up working his way up until he got a job at a bank at, uh, the old Detroit bank. And, uh, and eventually by the time he retired, he'd worked his way up to be a vice president of the bank. Uh, but they were essentially a blue collar family being Italian immigrants it was sort of the class into which they moved. Now, because of that, in your household, what was your household like growing up? Did you have any uh, creative influence on you when, you know, what do you think started to get you into the past of going into the acting career? I mean, a lot of times some people will grow up and their father will be a musician or their parents listen to music or there's always TV on. What, what got caught you at a young age or how did your whole career start to take part? Well, it's uh, it's nothing that I can really nail down. It was I found out many years later that my father's father uh, had been an amateur actor and had also appeared in, uh, believe it or not, uh, this was around World War One, had appeared in um, minstrel shows, um, and uh, you know the banjos and blackface and the whole deal. Uh, but that was nothing that I knew then. That was something I only found later. There were no performance-based uh, people in my family at all, musical or acting uh, at all. Uh, no creative uh, strain in my family. I think the first time I felt myself drawn to that was when I was pretty young. And my parents took me to see uh, The Music Man, the Meredith Wilson uh musical um now it's it's weird to me when i wrote my book uh and i was dealing with this part of my life why i should have been so uh inspired by the music man if i didn't already want to be an actor but i really didn't um and yet uh, it so inspired me that i wound up trying to produce and this would be about the age of seven or eight um a production of the music man in my basement uh, with the neighborhood kids, um, which didn't go beyond the first table read as it were. Um, but it was an attempt. So uh, music man was the first thing that seemed to draw me at all into the direction of, of, of acting. 
Now, how did you start following that? I know, you know, in your book, you've mentioned how you, you were a nerd, or they can use that term. And, I mean, was were you quiet? Is that why you think you got into acting as you got older? What started this whole move? No, it, it, wasn't, the, it wasn't that I was withdrawn or anything in, in, in particular. Uh, you know, before I started in middle school in Detroit, I had been over in Europe. I, my parents had been transferred to Switzerland. And so I'd attended school for several years in Switzerland, which was, it was mainly English kids, uh, some Americans, um, you know, some Australians. They were all English speaking anyway. And, um, and in that environment, I wasn't, I didn't feel particularly like an outsider. Um, but when I returned, um, partially because I'd been overseas, uh, I, was, I was sort of targeted in middle school. And I, I, I sort of became withdrawn in short order. Um, I was always very bookish. I always had a love for books. And um, so I think that that was one of the things that sort of set me apart in, in that school, um, which was a pretty uh, tough school in some ways, a suburban Detroit school. And um, it was that 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 we it became my refuge. Books not only were the thing that made me a nerd; um, they were also a refuge from a lot of other unpleasantness. And um, and it was in middle school, in the midst of that, that I met uh, a teacher named Will Young, who was an actor, uh, who was now teaching speech and drama at the middle school, and. It was he who really inspired me to become an actor. That's amazing because I know, I mean, I'm, I'm 53 and, you know, my high school, I grew up in a very nice area. I mean, it was, I mean, for our schooling system and acting was something that a lot of people didn't get into at my age. You know, I, when I was in high school and being in junior high, was there a lot of people who were participating in acting or were you one of the only few or, or what was it like? Well, well, I mean, you know, it was, it was not, it was not a, a, a the sort of diminished uh, th- uh, thing that it is today. So few schools now offer speech or drama um, because they're not considered important, you know, or music classes or debate, those kinds of things, which used to be just a very natural thing. I mean, by the time I got to to high school, and, and we're talking now 1968, 69, by the time I got to high school, there were three drama teachers, speech and drama teachers, each of them teaching different sorts of aspects. Uh, and there was also a band and a choir and uh, a debate team and all of those things. Those were all considered part of, an, of sort of a well-rounded education. They weren't considered um, wastes of students' time because it wasn't going to prepare them for life uh, you know, once they got out of school, which in my case, of course, is ridiculous because it did prepare me for it. Um, and there are a lot of kids, I think, who would benefit from it. I was certainly one of them. And when I was in middle school, um, there were a lot of kids. I mean, it was I, some of them admittedly took speech or drama because they thought it would be an easy class. Um, and some of them did indeed sort of snooze through it. Um, but of course, that doesn't make it different from a lot of classes. Um, 
the people who would who would sleep through uh, speech or drama were the same people who would sleep through math. Um, and I think what wound up happening was they they sort of discovered many of them um, discovered something in themselves that they hadn't known was there. And I think that that was the case with me, um, that when I started doing um, speech and drama, particularly forensics, uh, which was this uh, educational, uh, 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 I think it's still around, um, thing that you would you would audition, you would uh, pick a, a, a subject like uh, dramatic reading or comic reading or something along that line and do like a three minute piece. And it was a competition, basically, and it would start in your school and then it would go to a district competition, then a regional competition, then a state and so on. And um, I got into forensics because of Will Young. And, of course, I tended to focus mainly on comic pieces because even then it it was that seemed to be where my strength was. And uh, and that is what really you know, started to make everything, everything started to make sense at that point. And going in to do the high school uh, plays and so on, extended it. And, you know, by the time I was done with high school, uh, there was no question in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. So now, do you want to go to college? Yes. Um, I went to, uh, I went to uh, Western Michigan uh, in Kalamazoo for one year. And then I abandoned that for the Academy of Dramatic Art, which was at Oakland University uh, in Michigan. And it was a two-year intensive study classical program where you learned how to be a stage actor, uh, which was what my dream was. My dream was never to be a, a film actor or a TV actor. It was always stage. And so I went through that program and went on to, with some of my classmates, to form our own theater company in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, and that lasted a couple of years, sort of an itinerant group, moving around doing different odd plays that no one else was doing. And uh, they eventually went to Detroit and became a very well-known theater called the Attic Theater in Detroit. And I moved to New York and started my stage career. What was it like? And that would have been... That would have been 1976. What was it like going to New York then? You know, you're coming from Michigan. You you know what you want to do. You've been working on your craft. You've been working on your craft since you were in eighth grade, basically. So you have the chops. You know that. And to make a move to New York, most people know they can. They have a chance. What was it like when you first went there? Did you feel a little bit lost because you were doing your show and the productions around Michigan? And Michigan is a lot different than Manhattan. What was it like when you first got there? And, and how did you start breaking in? Well, I mean, it was the way in those days, at least, of course, Manhattan was very different than it is now. It was it was going through very rough times. And uh, but on the other hand, it was a lot cheaper to live, um, which was an advantage when you were first showing up there to be an actor. And I broke into it the same way everyone does. I mean, an actress I'd worked with in the theater uh, previous to this had gone on tour for a year so I subletted her apartment on in the village, and uh, and then I started doing what what actors tend to do. I I didn't take classes in Manhattan because I had just come out of 
two years of classes. So I focused on getting a job. Uh, and I did it by uh, getting a part-time, part-time work to pay the rent and then going out on auditions uh, for whatever there was, which for a while was not much. And what there was was non-paying. You know, it was one of those things where you would do a play at some off-off Broadway or showcase thing, um, and you basically rehearsed for free, and then you did the play four nights a week, and you got paid in subway tokens. <laughs> uh, literally, subway tokens. Somebody would come up to you on Thursday night, you know, for the first show, and hand you four subway tokens, and that was your payment for the weekend. Um, and I used to walk to the theater so I could keep my subway tokens for when I really needed them. So it was a, you know, it's the, that's sort of the way it works. And then you, you, you know, after you start doing it for a while, uh, I was doing regional theater at the same time. Uh, and I wound up getting an agent and, you know, so then you start getting set up for different things that pay some off Broadway um, tours, that kind of thing. And, you know, it feels like it's taking forever at the time. And another thing that I discovered when I went back and started writing the memoir was realizing it really didn't take that long. And it made me realize something else, which was when I had left the academy, uh, you know, there was a very strong sense that they gave us that this was not going to be easy. And, uh, you weren't just going to walk into productions. And I sort of gave myself a self-imposed time limit. I, so I graduated in what? I graduated from the academy in about 74 or 70, 75, I guess. And I gave myself 10 years I, I don't know if I ever said this to anyone, but I gave myself a, a, a self-imposed time limit. And I said, if I haven't had some indication that I'm an actor, I'm, I am employable, I'm actually going to make it in this business, in 10 years, I'm, I'm going to quit. I, I'm, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life living hand to mouth in a difficult profession in which most people don't succeed i'll just quit do you think you would have i mean in all honesty when you look back you had the success but you know a lot of people put you know they say this but if you love it like you know you said you you loved it and you you studied it do, yeah. you, do you think you would have quit or do you think you would have said i'll give it five more years yeah i don't know i i honestly don't know i mean there was one period during that time where uh i had fallen in love with someone and uh i had decided which was a huge mistake, and fortunately, she put the kibosh on it. But I had this idea that I was going to take a part-time job and get married. I was going to marry this woman. Um, I was living in New York at the time, and I was working at a <laughs> at a company that. Uh, it's funny, I don't tell this story in the book for some reason, but I was working at a, I, I, I'd been working for months at a company that made um, chemical uh, fertilizer. And, uh, you know, there's some horrible job in this miserable little <laughs> place. 
And I, but I was really getting along with the guy who hired me and, and it seemed like there was a chance that I might be able to wrangle a full-time job selling fertilizer. And so when I decided that I was going to marry this woman and quit acting, I went to the guy and I said, I want to quit acting and work for you forever. And the guy was, you know, a little hesitant, obviously, because, you know, he knew actors. And, you know, even if they say that they're not going to do it, they'll, you know, somebody will call them with a job and they'll disappear. And uh, so he said, well, let me think about it. And I, I remember going home and calling this woman. She was still in Michigan at the time. And I called her up and I said, that's it. I've, I'm, I'm going to go to work for this guy you're going to move here and we'll get married. And, and I'm saying goodbye to acting forever. And she said, you must be out of your mind. You can't even think about doing that. You have to stay acting and so on. And the next morning I called the guy and, and he said, well, I've been thinking about it. And, um, I, I think you really, uh, you're really a responsible guy and, and, and I like you and you know what? You have a job. And I said, well, actually, there's a problem. I, I've decided that I'm actually going to stay being an actor. And he um, yelled at me and hung up, and I was fired as of that moment. So that was the closest I ever came to, within that timeline, actually getting out of the acting business. And I think, now that I think about it, it was just temporary derangement. <laughs> So now you're you're acting around now. When does TV and movies start calling you? What what made you start auditioning for that? Was an agent who said, you know, you got to get out and do some other stuff, or what? What called? What was the calling? Well, it was uh, I was doing an off Broadway play that had, had gotten uh, a lot of good notices and so on um, at the Colonnades Theater Lab, and um, it ran for quite a long time. And once that started happening, when you started being in plays that got, you know, good reviews and so on, um, then it became uh, another thing. And the agent would be able to set you up for Broadway or for films. And so it would, but it was not until, I mean, I'd done a few auditions, but it wasn't until 81, I think, that I started getting serious um, film auditions, never anything for television, always film. And I never really believed in it. I never believed anyone would hire me for it until Paul Brickman and John Abnett hired me for Risky Business, which was in 82. And uh, so that was the first time where I, uh, I considered auditions for films to be anything but a waste of time. When you auditioned for Risky Business, you were... 28 or 29 at the time. I know Alan Rockett told me when he got the role as Cameron, they basically said, you know, they thought he was too old. He looked too old, you know, because he's playing a high school kid. When you yeah. got that role, were you a little intimidated going in because you saw, did you see a breakdown that said the age? Or did you say, I'm an actor, I, I don't look old, I can just pull this off? Well, I looked so young at that age. I mean, it's ridiculous. I look at it now and it's unbelievable to me that I was 29. Um, because it just, over 28, um, it just, I just looked incredibly youthful and I hated it because I was always getting cast as kids, right. um, you know, in the theater too, uh, often. So, uh, I think I, I, I didn't, I didn't worry about it because that was very much the standard then, you know, it's, it's funny now 
because in movies and TV now, when they have teenagers, high school graduates or high school students, they cast people of that age. Um, that didn't used to be the way it was. It used to be you order you you cast somebody who was in their twenties who had some experience but looked young, and everyone just accepted that as the reality of casting in Hollywood. I mean that that goes back you know forever. Um, so at the time it didn't bother me particularly. All of us were too old for it except Tom Cruise. Um, Tom was nineteen I think or turned nineteen. Uh, while we were there in Chicago. Um, but, you know, Tom was the only one who was really young enough to to pass. The rest of us were all, you know, in our mid-20s or late-20s in my case. Now, you shoot that movie when you were on set and shooting it, you know, a bunch of you guys are, and girls are having fun. Did you think it would hit like it did? I mean, I remember that movie came out of nowhere. And, I mean, I graduated high school in 82, so, you know, we were basically, you know, starting college then. And, I mean, everybody my age went to see that. Did you even have an inkling that it would just be so, like, such a hit and still be popular to this day? Not at all, no. I mean, I don't know, I don't know that I ever feel that. I, in fact, the opposite. Usually the ones I think are going to be huge wind up being flops that no one knows about. Um, I'm a bad judge of that kind of thing. I think in risky, in the case of risky business, from the moment I read the script, I knew it was a great movie. I mean, it was a great script. Um, but the idea of thinking that, I mean, it's, it's hard to even conceive of it now because the, the culture was so different. Um, you know, you, you didn't have yet the cable TV and the home home video and all that, which is what made most of the movies from the 80s on live. If they had, you know, I mean, Risky Business might be a different a different thing because it was really an incredibly well-made movie and would probably have existed even without that. But most of the movies that I've done, the, the you know, so-called cult movies, the nerds and the Savage Steve Holland movies, they survived because people suddenly were able to watch them at home and watch them over and over whenever they wanted to. And that's that changed that changed the entire business so that, you know, you would think that a movie like Revenge of the Nerds would come out or, or Risky Business and it would it would do OK you know, I mean, what do you know? I mean, you're an actor. You, you don't know whether it's, you know, first weekend was good or not. That's something else that that, that we've learned, you know, that, that the general public has learned since is because of television shows. Now, you know, oh, well, the first weekend was bad. Well, this movie's not going anywhere. Uh, we didn't know that then. We just knew that we had done a movie and we hoped it was going to be good. What was it like transitioning from doing so much stage to doing a, a movie because basically it was your first movie and a stage, even if it's off Broadway, even if it's getting paid for subway tokens, you're still you're still flexing your chops every night. You're doing a long performance. Movies, I know movies have changed a lot to the fact that now it's all you know you don't do the long takes like you used to. But what was it like for your experience as when you're walking on set to sit there and be you're not going to be acting straight through? What is that like for an actor? It was, uh, it, I mean, it was, uh, 
I think I had worked on it enough that I felt really, I, I think I felt okay. I don't remember being terrified, which surprises me. Um, but I think I had been working on it for so long because we had, the rehearsal process had gone on for a long time. I mean, the audition process, sorry, had gone on for a long time. So I kept having to show up at at uh, at uh, the casting agents and doing these uh, these auditions alone or with some of the other actors. And so by the time I got to Chicago, I knew all of the lines. And so and I had a sense of who he was, Miles, and um I mean, it was interesting and it was kind of intimidating because I'd never done it before. But I don't remember, and I've got a journal from the time. I don't remember a lot of a lot of fear leading up to it. And also, Paul had arranged for all of the guys, Bronson and Tom and and Raphael and me and Kevin, to sort of hang out uh, and and we would do you know rehearsals, just read throughs and so on. So I, I felt pretty good when it started, actually. Now, that movie shoots, and now when does Revenge of the Nerds come in? Had the movie come out, or because you were coming off doing a movie, because as they say, once you're working, you know, it, right. it, it, it snowballs, and I think that's a little more back then. Had that movie come out yet before Revenge of the Nerds, you got the audition, or was it something that when you were shooting Revenge of the Nerds, Risky Business came out and started getting popular, which even upped your, you know, what your Hollywood worth? Um, it did not come out uh, for a year because um, because it was um, uh, let's see if I can get the chronology. It had it had been delayed for a year because they made Paul Brickman redo it. They it made him reshoot the ending, and it took a long time. So uh, I had already. I had already filmed Nerds uh, before it came out. Now, how did the nerd audition come about? And once again, you're playing a college guy, but you looked young, which, you know, you worked for your advantage because you're getting these younger parts, which is great, even though it's funny. In the beginning, it frustrated you when you're going off for kids. Then all of a sudden, it's your bread and butter. What was it? Uh, how did you think that, once again, you don't know, but what, what was your thought about when you read for Nerds? Do you think that people would embrace this or did you think... I want to, you know, I just want to keep working. Well, I did want to keep working, but I didn't want to keep working if it meant doing this. Um, it was, it, I didn't like the script at all, especially right after, you know, Risky Business. I thought the next thing should be, you know, a little more, um, I don't know, more in the style of Risky Business, a classy movie. And this was far from that. And, uh but of course, I'd been reading. I mean, I've told this many times, but I've been reading for Anthony Edwards' part. Um, they hadn't told me they were think, considering me for for Booger, so I was reading Anthony's part, which was a nice part. I mean, it's not a great movie, but it's a nice part. So I wasn't feeling, you know, I was thinking, all right, well, it's I hate the title and it's really stupid, um, but you know, at least it's a good part, was how I was thinking. And then eventually I found out that they'd actually cast that role with Anthony and Bobby Carradine was doing the other lead and that they wanted me to uh, to play another nerd. 
And I just could not, I mean, I was looking at the script, which I had already read and realized this is not, um, not, this is not what I, not what I wanted. I, you know, I'm looking at the, I'm trying to figure out who it is that they're even considering me for. And, you know, there were certain ones, obviously not Lamar, uh, you know, not Takashi, not Wormser, um, which sort of led it down to either Poindexter or Booger. And uh, I got, I had one of those little flurries of independent outrage where I said I would only take Poindexter. I said, that's it. I, I'm not going to play Booger. Yeah, I'll, I'll do Poindexter because that's at least not embarrassing, but I'm not going to pick my nose and belch for anyone, so you can just tell them that. And then they told them that, and they said, well, we were going to offer him Booger, so the agent called back and said, well, they want you to do Booger. And I said, oh, okay. Because, because you know, I needed for my own ego to deny it. And if it had, you know, of course, I... I I probably would have deeply regretted it had I had they actually said, "Okay, fine, we'll get someone else," but they didn't, so I wound up doing it. Plus, I mean, apart from everything else, it had been a year since I'd worked, and I needed money desperately, and that was a strong allure. Now, when these movies come out, they become popular. How does your life change? You know, because one, it's something that you're, once again, you're not someone who's getting this this fame when they're 21 or 22. You know, you've been working your craft. You're not in that, you're a more matured age where it's like, you know, all of a sudden if you're 21 or 22 and you become very popular and people are looking at you, you know, you're going to go a little more crazy than someone who's older what was your how did your life change when that happened and were people like making you quote the line from risky business all the time i mean how did curtis change and, and how did you keep yourself grounded well i i think that yeah people sort of again a lot of that you know the you know you know the, the asking me to quote lines or doing stuff like that um a lot of that was was a few years uh coming it was not right away it wasn't like i had be you know had been cast in the lead role in an enormously popular television show or you know a, a movie that got an academy award it wasn't anything like that i mean nerds ran for a few weeks in the theater and then disappeared you know i mean it wasn't it was a while before people again thanks to cable and home video started becoming aware of these things and then by the end of the decade that was when i was beginning to get all of the uh, oh do the you know um your mother's douchebag line or whatever um those the, that all came in time um i don't think it changed me i think for the reason that you say because it came late i had already developed a work ethic which was uh i think pretty pretty solid and um so it didn't really change much and i never was you know i never made a ton of money um so i wasn't buying sports cars or anything um you know i mainly spent money on books um i have a i have a you know a, a jones for for uh, rare books and that was the one area where I would I would splurge. But basically, 
you know, I, I still was living pretty much the life that I had, had led before. Uh, I was always because I, because I don't know whether it was just coming up the way I did or whether it was part of the way I was raised. I'm not sure, but I, I always had that sense that it was kind of self-deprecating. I never really believed that anyone believed in me. I didn't really believe anyone. I didn't. I never thought that I was going to. I thought it was always going to be work. As it turns out, I, <laughs> I was right. Um, but I always felt like uh, it's going to take. It's going to take a lot of of time, and I should never take anything for granted. And I think that that was the the biggest deal for me was realizing that um, there's no time. I'm not going to be on a television show for 12 years. I finally did a television show in in, in 1987, and that was Moonlighting, um, but that only lasted three seasons. Uh, and it was the most I until Supernatural. It was the most I ever time I ever spent on any one thing. You know, and then you leave it and you go on to something else. But it's not, uh, except unusual cases, there's usually some gap where you go, okay, now I'm never going to work again, which is a, which is an actor's lot. You know, you tend to think, okay, I fooled them up till now, but now's the time where no one ever hires me. Right. <laughs> now, now you said you know your love for books. What was the first first audition you bought when you started making money? I mean, what were some of the rare books you would buy? Would you and where would you find them? Because it's not like now you can go into eBay or Amazon. Where right. would, it, where, where would no, you go? I haunted, I haunted used bookstores, but the first money I spent on a book uh, was the first paycheck I got from my first professional play, which was Meadowbrook at Meadowbrook Theater. I was playing Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. And for the first time, I was being paid, you know, equity minimum for regional theater. And I don't even remember what it was. It was probably not much, but it seemed like a fortune to me. And with my first paycheck, I bought Ron DeWall's uh, world bibliography of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, which was this mammoth uh, uh, book of the history in print of the Sherlock Holmes uh, canon of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It was not a rare book. It was a new book, but it was a huge reference book, which cost $60, which at the time was unthinkable for me. And uh, but when I got my first paycheck, I took sixty dollars, went to I was living in Ann Arbor. I went to the um, Borders bookstore, which was Borders bookstore. It was a bookstore before it became Borders. This was the flagship theater. I mean, the flagship uh, bookstore. And I bought Ron DeWall's book. That was the first what I thought was ridiculous amount of money that I spent on a book. Later in the 80s, when I was doing movies regularly, I started buying first editions of Doyle, first editions of Washington Irving, P.G. Woodhouse, uh, the kinds of things that I, you know, I was always reading and loving in paperback. I started going and looking for, for first editions. 
what is your most prized? If you could say, what is your most prized possession as a book? I don't know that I could narrow it down, honestly, to one. I've got some very rare Holmes material, some very rare Irving material, but I, and and other stuff, weird outside the box stuff, like a first edition of Boswell's Life of Johnson, things like that. But I, I don't know that I could na- narrow it down to one thing. It's just, um, it's uh, you know, I've got rooms of books here. Uh, it's my uh, my my curse. Uh, but it's you know, it, it was just what I it was what I did with my money. It was travel and books. That's two good things. You can't complain, you know. And, and the books always keep their value. You know, always have a special part in your heart and in your memory. Well, it's more the second than the first. I'm not sure. I I mean, with a few exceptions, most of the books that I have, I will never make back the money I spent on them. It was more important that I have them, uh, and I kept them. Now, back to your acting career, I want to ask you about when you started working with Savage Steve Holland. It was so better off that was such a different movie. I mean, it was, you know, his, his... the way he shot movies were, were different, and at the time, you know, we haven't seen anything like it. Did you know you would be working with him again after Better Off Dead, and did you guys just hit it off? No, I, I think that um, I think that it was actually not that. It was a um, it was a um, I don't remember him ever saying that he was going to work with us again. I mean, I think he knew. We all knew that um, that. Uh, I think we knew that I knew that John Cusack was going to work with him, but I, I think it, because I think there was an idea that John had already signed to do another movie with him. Uh, but it was a while before I found out about it. Um, but when I had read better off dead, it was like the opposite of revenge of the nerds. When I read better off dead, I, I, from the first page, I thought this is brilliant, and I want to do this. I'm desperate to do this. So, uh, and in a way, it took much longer for Better Off Dead to catch on than than it did for Nerds. Um, but I no, I I don't think I had any idea. I certainly would not have dreamed that. Uh, my relationship with Savage would have lasted as long as it has. I mean, you know, we continued to work together either on on television or uh, or animated stuff or movies ever since, basically. Now, now you mentioned Moonlighting earlier. Was Moonlighting was sort of one of your first roles where you're getting out of playing that high school college kid? Kind of. Um, it's certainly the first movie that anyone remembers. Um, I mean, the first job that anyone remembers. I mean, I'd done a couple of movies before that, Bad Medicine, uh, uh, which was a comedy that uh, I'd done in 85, and and Clan of the Cave Bear, obviously not a wise-cracking high school thing. I was playing a caveman. Um, but it, it, those are movies no one really recalls. Um, so it was the first time that I was playing a contemporary character uh, who was not, you know, he was a second banana, but it was a different thing. Now, 
was was moonlighting something you were excited to do? Were you excited to do TV because you'd be coming from movies? And you know, it's once again, it's a different it's a different style of shoot. You know, there's there's more of a constricted air time when you have to shoot. What was your when you transferred or parlayed over to TV? Was there an easy transition for you? It was pretty easy because it was actually not that different. Um, uh, I know that it is for a lot of shows, but Moonlighting was a little different because um, it was like making a movie every 10 days. It, the style and the reason that the move, that the show has lasted so well um, is because of that. They felt like movies. They were made by people who loved movies, and, and Glenn Gordon Karen was the sort of genius who had figured out a way to get sort of weekly movies out of a out of a mainstream network and and in ways that they would never have imagined he, he was really you know brilliant in that way and the 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 uh, show itself felt like we were making a movie it was you 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 didn't really feel rushed quite the opposite we used to fall behind constantly in our shooting schedule for various reasons but you never felt like you were under the gun um until towards the end of the run of the of the show when it became you know it started to become ridiculous um but but when i first when i first started working there in the first place, I didn't realize I was going to be a regular on the show. I thought I was going to be, uh, I was going in for one episode and there was a possibility. They, you know, they always say that you weren't, I didn't really think that it was going to happen. Um, but then it wound up happening and I became a regular. And in fact, um, I've only been a regular on a television show once since, um, which is kind of surprising to me. I've been a recurring one, but uh, that was the only time I was uh, that and Chronicle, which happened on Sci-Fi years later, uh, which only lasted a season. That was the only time. Now, after Moonlighting, you leave Moonlighting, you're getting older. Now, are you? do you feel like now you're going to start trying to get... What kind of roles are you looking to get? You've had success. I mean, you had you know some movies that were you know now are called classics. Back then, they took later to hit. Moonlighting was a top show. What, where does your mind go as an actor when you sit there? When you're, you, I'm sure you don't want to play the young person anymore because one, you're not young, and two, you're probably like, well, you know what? I don't. I want to. I'm an actor. I'm not just some guy playing a young person. What were your career objectives after you after Moonlighting was over? You left out. What were you looking to get booked on? I, I, you know, again, this is such. It's almost embarrassing because I don't ever remember having goals except to keep working. I really don't remember saying I want to be, you know, this or I want to be in this. I, I don't even remember seeing shows that I liked. And thinking I should be on that show, it 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 wasn't the way my mind worked. All I wanted to do was keep working in something, and I would if it was a good part, I was happy, and if it was a bad part, I went okay. Well, this will soon be over, and uh, I had a lot of them after that. Um, I was still working on stage, which was nice. That kept that kept me you know, he kept one foot at least in, uh, you know, in the area where I'd set out to, to go. Um, 
and then you know something would come up some good tv show or a movie something you know uh, hawk finn was around that time you know small part but you know getting to work with jason robards and robbie coltrane and people like that and and I just i mean it, it was things came along and uh i took it as it came um i was always working uh or pretty much always working for that decade um and i was lucky i felt like i was lucky to do it now the sequels for Revenge of the Nerds. How does uh, how does an actor decide to do a sequel? And then did you decide you know it's probably good pay? And do you sit there and go it's not going to be on its time? How do you did you and did you think there'd be end up being four Revenge of the Nerds? No, no, they didn't. Uh, Fox hated Revenge of the Nerds, and they tried to bury it when it came out, and it it outlasted them. It out, it certainly outlasted the regime that tried to bury it, and. Uh, but we, you know, I, I think we never dreamed that they would do a sequel. And then three years later, they did. And I turned it down a couple of times. I was on Moonlighting then. And I felt like I don't want to do this. Uh, and I wound up, uh, I wound up agreeing to do it because uh, they paid very well. And they made a lot of promises, which, of course, they didn't keep, um, about the script and so forth. And uh, Bobby Carradine was really pushing me to do it because, at that point, Anthony was also not going to do it. So, you know, and, you know, also, I really loved those guys and still do. And the the prospect of being well paid to, I mean, I didn't care about going to Fort Lauderdale particularly, but... Um, you know, the fact that we would all be, you know, spending some time together and getting well paid for it was, you know, it was okay. And they were able to work out a deal with Moonlighting. I missed a couple of episodes of Moonlighting, but, you know, the the money that I would get for this would pay for the money I was losing. And so I wound up doing it. Um, but then that movie, although it's, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to think it's it's you know, it's their favorite, which is some sort of lost on me, but, uh, but people really loved it. And then, you know, we wound up doing the last two for television. And by that time, um, it was really money. I, I wish I could say that there was, I went into it, I, I guess the first one, maybe I went into it hoping that it was going to be, uh, it would be, you know, back to the level of the first one, but it really wasn't. And there was stuff you couldn't do on television, which restricted us. And the last two movies just, you know, they were jobs. Now you're doing, you've done a lot of comedy and, you know, and you're good at comedy, you know, and, but I just said you're a stage actor. When Ray came along, did you jump all over that? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that was, that was amazing. I mean, I, I was supposed, I actually went in to read for, for the part of Jerry Wexler. I did, it was the part Richard Schiff played, um, uh, which was bizarre. But the casting woman was Nancy Clopper. And Nancy had cast me in Risky Business. All these years had passed. And in all those years, I had never been brought in to read on any project she'd done. And she'd become one of the big casting directors in Hollywood. 
and uh, largely based on the success of Risky Business. And yet, I had never heard from her. I'd never been brought in on anything. And then we had a reunion, a Risky Business reunion somewhere. Uh, it was a 10-year, 15-year reunion, whatever it was, of Risky Business. And Nancy was there, and we wound up talking. And a week or so later, I get a call asking me to go in to read on this Taylor Hackford film, uh, Ray, and to read the part of Jerry Wexler. And Wexler, I mean, both Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler were people who I had, I mean, I had followed for years. The Atlantic Records, uh, you know, all of those, I had all of their records. So I knew everything about them already because I'm a bit of a music nerd as well. So I was pretty excited uh, to go in on that. And then I went in and read for what, the Wexler part. And uh, I could tell the minute I started reading that, that uh, Taylor was not listening. I could just see him sort of staring at me blankly, but clearly, you know, actors can tell after, you know, a couple of seconds, you know, whether you're being tuned out or not. And I figured, well, I fucked that up. And then as soon as I was done, he said, would you mind reading for Ahmed in, instead, Ahmed Erdogan? And I said, no, of course. And I went out into the hall, and he gave me the pages. I went out, I looked at it, and and I came back in about 10 minutes later and read for Ahmet. He asked if I would shave my head. I said yes, and that was it. I had the part. Wow, and then it was a great movie, and it was something to be a good part of, you know what I mean? Especially as with a background of comedy, doing a role in a, in a heavy-hitting drama that was very acclaimed. Right. It had just been great. <laughs> Yeah, and I've hardly ever been asked to do it again, which <laughs> I think, you know, I think mainly because, you know, people tended to think it was Clint Howard. Um, I looked so different. I was unrecognizable. <laughs> and and I've heard I've heard tell that Clint is still getting compliments on his work in Ray. Now, you've had such a great career. What made you decide to finally write a book? Just, um, you know, I keep everything. I don't I don't throw stuff away. So I had all these letters and these journals and diaries and things going back to high school, really. And um, I just thought, you know, I'd been writing a lot. I'd been writing screenplays for a time in the in the 90s. And uh, I just had a. a, a uh, a, a, a yearning to do that, but I could never find a really a real real outlet for it. Um, film writing was when I was doing it was lucrative, but it wasn't really satisfying. Um, and I wanted wanted to try my hand at something. And I, you know, actors tell sit around and tell each other stories and so on. And I think I just realized I've got all of this back there. Why not? You know, but I, I was thinking of it more from the nerd aspect. I think the first time I started thinking about it was during King of the Nerds, during the, the show that Carradine and I were doing. And I was thinking about how my life had gone through this circle of starting as a nerd. And now here I am. And it's, you know, 20, whatever it was, 2011, when I, we did our first season of King of the Nerds. And I was thinking, here I am. I'm still, you know, I started out a nerd and now I'm executive producing a 
television show about nerds. And I guess it just sort of seemed like that was the nerd narrative was the way to go. And with all of this material I had, I certainly wasn't lacking for material. And so I just dove into it. And uh, I mean, it took a long time, but uh, but, you know, people were interested. So it got sold. What's the feeling when you get it done? Because one, it's you know, it's a book. It's not it's not your acting. It's a book about right. you and with a nerve view. And it's it's your story. And, you know, you want to touch people because, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, you know, even well, maybe 30, nerds have been more accepted. And that's something that, you know, and you're, you know, when you call, you know, your book, you know, Revenge of the Nerd, people, you know, they want to sit there and they want to read it. And, and I'm sure it touches some people. What was your thoughts when you got it done? Did you say, okay, man, this is going to be really good. And were you worried about any reviews you're going to get? Because a review for a book is different than a movie because a review for your book about your story is you. Yeah. Um, well, I, in the first place, I never say I think this is really going to be good about anything. Uh, I always think that it's probably people are going to hate it. Um, that goes with my acting career and everything. I'm always surprised when people like things. Um, I was a little, so I liked what I had written. I mean, I thought that the book was good, but I was, I was not sure how it would be received. Um, as it turns out, review-wise, there have been relatively few reviews of the book. The ones that have come out have been very good, but there were there were there were relatively few ones. And I think uh, I don't know. I just I guess I was I was the the process was difficult. Also, more difficult than I'd intended. The editing process was difficult. Realizing the stuff that had to go. Uh, as opposed to the stuff that had to, that could stay, um, it was going. I think the biggest lesson I learned was that when a story is finished and it's handed in to be published, it's no longer your story. It's what people will make of your story. And in the in the weeks leading up to it, to the publication. Um, I really was beginning to hallucinate that I had written a book about Tom Cruise uh, because it was the, it was the the risky business stuff was what what everyone was fascinated by, uh, and I kind of it was going well, but there's all this other stuff. What's the fascinating? I mean, you know, when you go through something yourself, you don't really understand the attraction for what you do. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, you, as an actor, you just go through your life doing what you do. And you forget, after you've been doing it for a while, that there is a fascination that people have uh, with what you do. And so what, what winds up happening is, you know, the, the focus tends to be on stuff that, even though you know that's what's going to happen, it surprises you. And and because this was written with the idea of a narrative, a nerd narrative following this whole, you know, as I was going to call the book originally, I was going to call it a nerd's progress, which was the idea of what happens to the boy nerd as he grows and 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 so forth. Um, I think the publisher wanted 
Revenge of the Nerd because they could connect it with the movie, obviously, from a marketing standpoint. Um, but I don't know. I, I just, I guess the, the, the process was something, once the writing was done, which was very enjoyable, although hard, um, the, the rest of that process was much more difficult, I think, than I was expecting. Now, do you ever think that, you know, the title at the end of your tagline, what we call the single adventures of a man who would be Booger, do you ever think that if you had turned down Booger, how different your life would have been? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. People ask me a lot what it's like to be typecast. Um, I never felt typecast ever because I think there's a difference between being typecast in a role and being defined by a role. I am certainly defined by Booger, and I, I've accepted that for decades. That means when I die, the first line of the obituary will read <laughs> Curtis Armstrong, best known as Booger in Revenge of the Nerds. And that would be true even if I found a cure for cancer in the meantime. That's being defined by a role. Um, on the other hand, I never really played that role after that. I mean, I played that role four times, and it is the role for which I'm best known. Um, but as an actor who's living a career and going through his life, uh, you if, if what you do goes on to be all of this other stuff, you don't wind up feeling typecast. So when I think about Booger, I think about the fact that, and I'm indebted to Booger, because it was the, the popularity, the enduring nature of that, of that movie and that role, which has been, to a great degree, responsible for everything else that I've ever done. Um, so I, you know, I, I feel lucky. When I got, when I got uh, something like as, as weird as, you know, uh, Supernatural, the character of Metatron and Supernatural. You know, part of the part of what was fun of with that for for the people who were hiring me was the idea of Booger playing the scribe of God. You know, uh, so it it has done nothing but help me. It has never hindered me in any way, um, and I've actually become rather fond of the character after all these years. See, that's awesome. Well, you know what? I want to thank you for coming on. This has been great. As I said, I'm a fan. And uh, as I said, your movies, as I said, if if someone's over 45 and if they've been seen Better Off Dead, you, you just want to punch them. I'm sorry. It's one of those <laughs> no. things you go, you go, what is wrong with you? But so the book is called Revenge of the Nerd or dot, 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 The Singular Adventures of the Man Who Would Be Booger. We can find that on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and I'm sure they, they search for it. And I know you tweet a lot. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's Curtis's Booger. And you're, you're, you're actively out there tweeting? Oh, yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's a regular thing. So I want to thank you, uh, Curtis, for coming on. People, follow him on Twitter. Buy the book. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 645 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my book, Stop the Salt, When I Had That Health Problem, I wrote that cookbook, 120 low-sodium recipes that are easy to make. No pictures of ingredients to you know intimidate you. Uh, no, no long list of things to do. It's easy cooking. You'll be healthy. You can get it at Barnes Noble online or Amazon online. But if you get it at stopthesalt.com, 
I'll sign it for you and I make more money. So please go buy Curtis's book. Follow him on Twitter. Go to IMDb. Look at all his old movies. And if you haven't seen Better Off Dead, you better watch it. I'm Steve Cooper for Walk My Mind. You guys have a great day and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>